Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Last week, we actually finished chapter 1 in terms of the teaching of the verses themselves. But then what we did last week is we started a breakout session on the whole topic of official church discipline. And the reason we did that was because of the last few verses in chapter 1, which read this in verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having shipwrecked concerning the faith have, or I'm sorry, <laughs> let me back up. I'm, I'm reading, I always, anyways, I, shipwreck and rejected are right next to each other in my Bible, so right under each other, but having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so one of the things that we made the comment last week is, is that whole phrase delivering to Satan um, is, is basically a euphemism or a description of church discipline, putting believers outside of the church um, one of the reasons we believe that is because of that next phrase. It says that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so one of the things that we said about church discipline as a whole, the, the goal is to get the attention of the erring believer to teach them something and persuade them to change their mind about whatever it is they're involved in, whether it's teaching false doctrine. We went through a litany of reasons why somebody would would need to proceed to church discipline. And yet at the same time, we mentioned that it's really a last ditch effort. It's kind of way down the line in a process uh, because we're, we really want believers to to learn how to respond to correction and the truth of God's word without having to take this is more of a drastic step. And um, before we start on page 34, if you've got your notebooks, flip back to page 33 and the very, we want to just define church discipline again before we get into the, uh, the study tonight. But it, under letter A on page 33, number one, it says that church discipline may be defined as the corrective measure taken by the church to deal with unrepentant sin in the life of the believer. And then number two, the goal of church discipline is to bring about a change of mind, which ultimately leads to restoration with the Lord and with the local church. And so that's always important to consider and remember when we're talking about church discipline. This is uh, this is something that a local church enacts on an erring believer. And really, in that sense, it needs every member of that local church to participate in that um, removal, it's basically a separation from that person, and um, and so it takes a whole church. It's a tough love situation, obviously not ideal. We want the believer to respond so that we don't have to get to that stage, but it is it is a tool uh, in the toolbox of keeping the Lord's church uh, pure and on mission, and. Um, basically encouraging believers to grow spiritually. And so it's all, it's, it's just a, a tool. Um, but again, there's a process to get there. We're going to actually look at that process a little bit tonight, but go ahead and go back to page 34. We're going to look at the purposes in church discipline. And so letter C number one, church discipline ultimately is designed to bring God glory. God hates sin. 
especially in the life of his children, and has made ample provision for ongoing daily deliverance from its power. You know, one of the things that we see in Romans 6, 1 through 14, is that God has done something to put sin out of business in the believer's life. And he doesn't want sin dominating the life of one of his dear children. And so, because he's made everything possible, he's done everything possible to put uh, a deliverance mechanism in place. And again, that comes through our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ. As we're walking by faith in that truth, uh, the Lord, um, via via the power of the Spirit of God, really um, makes that practical in our life, where sin is not a dominating factor. And we know from 1 Thessalonians 4 that it's that our sanctification is God's will. That's what God wants to accomplish in the life of of the believer. And so church discipline is, is again, a mechanism which encourages that, which encourages uh, believers not to be dominated by sin so that their lives might bring glory to God. Number two, the church discipline is designed to strengthen Christ's church. And the Bible teaches that judgment or self-evaluation or discipline must first begin with God's household, especially as it relates to sin. And you can see a lot of cross references there talking about that, but you know, oftentimes um, the the church likes to judge everybody out there, you know, in the world and talk about how bad the world is. And and yet the Bible is very clear that there there needs to be a, a self-evaluation for the church, um, analyzing, you know, evaluating ourselves, evaluating our motives. Oftentimes, sometimes we get caught up into thinking, well, our external activities are OK. We're not, you know, sinning some big whopper sins or big sins. And so. We're probably spiritual, and that's not how it works. I mean, we're we're self-evaluating, even oftentimes our motives for when we do what we would consider good things, and just making sure that what we're doing, we're doing is unto the Lord, not to be seen of men, not to be praised by other people, etc. There's lots of different things there as it relates, but church discipline as a whole is designed to strengthen Christ's church. You Apparently, you've got a believer who's engaged in sin, might be a blind spot, they might not be aware of it. Or they're just plowing through all of the warning signs, blowing through their own conscience that's trying to to, to check them, so to speak, um, blowing through the correction of unbelievers, blowing through the instruction of the Word of God. And church discipline, we get to a point where it's, it's kind of the last-ditch effort to get their attention. And that's kind of what number three says. It's, it's designed to restore and heal a sinning believer. And oftentimes church discipline can shock somebody back into biblical thinking. And you know, Second Thessalonians chapter three and verses fourteen and fifteen says this, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And that's kind of a uh, a a form of church discipline there that you're not keeping company with this brother who's basically rejecting the word of God, basically rejecting clear biblical teaching, maybe in an area in their life. But notice, notice the purpose in verse 14, that he may be ashamed and the word ashamed specifically, it uh, means to bring reflection to, to bring a change of mind to, but to bring a mental reflection in their mind that they would, uh, it would affect their thinking. Okay. And so church discipline is kind of a shock. It's designed to be a shock to their system in order to get them thinking biblically to be restored and to heal 
uh, them, their, their spiritual relationship with the Lord. Because remember, ultimately when a believer uh, is under church discipline, it's because they've been out of fellowship with the Lord. And so we're hoping that this, this tool will restore or begin to heal them in terms of their spiritual growth and spiritual fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Number four, church discipline is designed to help the sinning believer become sound in the faith. And this is, you know, tough love. It's, it's tough love that's for their own good. And that's what we're looking to accomplish anytime church discipline is enacted. Number five, church discipline is designed to protect the church from the negative effects of sin. Sin that's not dealt with becomes like a pathogen or a yeast that permeates the whole body. The laid back attitude of the Corinthian church towards sin and discipline may have contributed to the many other areas of doctrinal and moral decay. In fact, we see this recorded for us um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, um, you know, one of the things that you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read verses 6 through 7. But one of the things we've got to understand is that church discipline may seem to, to you or to me, it may seem to be mean. It may seem to be judgmental, but we have to remember in the grand scheme of things, church discipline is a tool um, that's actually designed for the health of the church. And if we care anything about the church of Jesus Christ, at times we may need to do difficult things. We may need to enact tough love. Uh, for those of you that have uh, children, or if you've if you've had if you've had multiple children in in your house at the same time, you know, picture if if one of your sons or daughters actually became uh, dangerous um, to themselves and to the other children. Maybe they were uh, involved in in drugs, or maybe they were involved with uh, very violent people, and they were bringing them to the house. At some point, you, for the sake of the whole family, for the safety of the whole family you would need to put that child out, even though you still love that child. And even though you want relationship and fellowship with that child, there's a point in time where their presence and their activities are going to harm others. And that's really what church discipline uh, is about. Notice in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, um, this is that story. Great, gr- Another great just kind of illustration. You know, I think in 1 Timothy, what we have is uh, church discipline related to a doctrinal uh, error that was being communicated. So you could say that's it was church discipline based on religious error. Um, it wasn't like Hymenaeus and Alexander were necessarily involved in some licentious sin and they needed to be put out of the church. It was a religious error. It was a, a false doctrine that they were teaching. But in 1 Corinthians 5, we have a licentious error. We have a, uh, a young man who was shacking up with his stepmother um, and apparently doing it in full view or full knowledge of the entire church body. And the Corinthian church was not doing anything about it. And so Paul jumps in there. And one of the reasons he, he gives is found in verse 6. He says, you're glorying, glorying in the fact that they weren't challenging this young man, that they were probably in their mind showing quote-unquote grace to this guy by not kicking him out of the church. They were glorying, and he said, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover 
was sacrificed for us. And you, so you see his encouragement here. He, he says, Hey, if, if you don't do something about this, this guy, it's going to do damage to the whole, to the whole church. And so at some level, church discipline is designed to protect the church from the negative effects of sin. Number six, church discipline is also designed to silence false teachers and their negative influences upon the church. And, and one of the things that churches in general need to understand is, is you cannot, we cannot be silent or patient with false teachers. This is something that the word of God takes very seriously and encourages immediate action toward. In fact, look at Titus uh, chapter one, verses 10 through 11. Again, Titus is uh, much like Timothy was left at the church, church of Ephesus to kind of clean things up for the Apostle Paul. He was left there as an emissary of the Apostle Paul. Titus was left on the island of Crete for the same reason by the Apostle Paul. And in Titus 1, verses 10 through 11, it says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And then notice this next phrase, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So so Paul doesn't mince words there. When there's a false teacher, their mouths have to be stopped. We're not patient with false teachers. We don't, um, we may be patient if, if they're willing to stop opening their mouth <laughs> with their false teaching, if they're willing to listen to the teaching of the word of God. But as long as they're actively peddling their false doctrine, they are to be stopped by a church. Second Timothy two, uh, verse 16 through 18. And we see that Hymenaeus shows up again here in the second epistle to Timothy. And he had not responded to church discipline. He had not been restored, but verse 16, but says, but shun profane and idle babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. And again, we see what false teaching does. It impacts other people negatively. Even if uh, the elders in a church will never be impacted by false teaching because they're established. And so they say, well, we'll just leave the false teacher alone. He's not, he's not hurting us. He'll never change our mind. He could be impacting people in the body. So it's something that leaders need to take very seriously as they lead churches. Number seven, church discipline is designed to promote godly fear in the church body by illustrating how seriously God takes sin in the believer's life. Of course, we know the story from Acts chapter five, verse 11, Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives for lying and really just lying and making themselves look better to the church body by saying, oh yeah, we sold this piece of land and oh yeah, we gave you all of it. They didn't give all of it. They held back some for themselves, which was totally fine. They were within their right to do so, but they were trying to look good for everybody else because I believe Barnabas had just done something just like that, very sacrificial and to receive great praise. And so they were probably pursuing that same type of notoriety. And in 1 Timothy 5.20, we read this, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. And so there's this design, especially if, if somebody is erring or engaged in sin within the local body in such a way that, that the body knows about it. It's a very public 
known sin, like the gentleman in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who everybody in the church knew that he was shacking up with his stepmom. Uh, that very public sin needs to be dealt with uh, publicly after, and we'll talk about the process, but at some point that needs to be publicly dealt with, and that's what church discipline uh, allows for. Number eight, church discipline is designed to protect the church from becoming powerless. We know that sin in the life of individual believers grieves or quenches the Holy Spirit, resulting in a lack of power. Number nine, church discipline is designed to protect the church from a lack of growth and from failure in corporate ministry. If there is, so to speak, sin in the camp, the ministry of the body will be impaired. And we we learn that from the story even of Joshua 7. You know, Joshua 7 immediately follows the story of Jericho and Joshua 6. And those of you that uh, heard the, the sermon last week um, knows or may remember or may recall that all of the valuables in Jericho were to be devoted to the Lord and his house the, for, for his treasury. Um, and, and they were not to take any of that for themselves. But what we find out in Joshua 7 is a, a man named Achan had took of, of that devoted, those devoted pieces of, um, wealth, uh, and he had taken him for himself. And because he had done that, the very next battle, the Israelites fought in a, in a much less fortified city in AI, they lost that battle. And, um, Joshua came back really pulling his hair out like, Lord, what in the world? You know, we, we go in and we destroy Jericho and then we can't even take AI. Are you still with us? And Lord said, tells them, Hey, there's sin in the camp. And they had to identify who had taken of the devoted materials. And it was Achan and Achan and his family, um, were, were executed as, as a result. Now, obviously that's not church discipline. We're not executing anybody, but the point is this is when, there's sin in the camp, so to speak. It does impact the, su- the success of the corporate ministry of the church. Um, we see that even in 1 Corinthians 11, they, they, they weren't focused correctly at the Lord's Supper. They were, they were getting drunk. They weren't recognized in the body of Christ. They were turning it into a, uh, a buffet of sorts that the, the rich people kind of uh, it almost sounded like they told everyone that the Lord's Supper would begin, the Lord's Supper meal would begin at six, and then the rich people showed up at five so that they could get all the food they wanted and leaving other people out. So number 10, church discipline is designed to protect the church from failure and missions. The church is a body of believers who are to be Christ's ambassadors of reconciliation to a dying world. If sin is resident in the church, the church ceases to stand out as a light in the dark world. And so we see those verses mentioning that Ephesians talking about walking in the light, uh, Philippians two talking about standing out as, as children of the light in the middle of a crooked and perverse nation. And so if the church is not self, uh, judging or, or dealing with sin in its midst, we very quickly become, uh, a, a darkened place, so to speak, because we begin to, to, allow sin, which has the appearance that we approve of sin. And so it's very important to, to understand that church discipline has a, a purpose and the purpose is for the glory of God. That's probably the ultimate purpose for church discipline. Even though it may sound harsh to individuals, it is for God's glory that his church may be everything that he wants it to be in whatever community that it's in. And that's what we're after. Now, 
there is a biblical process of church discipline. And we use Matthew 18, and go ahead and turn there because we're going to be going through that passage a little bit. We use Matthew 18 as, as really kind of a, a principle. Uh, it, it, it contains principles, I think, for church discipline. And it's, it's really where we find a lot of our approach to church discipline. There's a, there's a process described in Matthew 18, and it's very similar, I believe, to the process of uh, church discipline. And so the biblical process of church discipline, again, is utilizing Matthew 18. And uh, let's go ahead and read this passage. It's three verses. Uh, I think it'll be familiar to you. And so let's read those. It says this, uh, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Okay, and so this is kind of the step that we're talking about. So the very first step uh, in church discipline, and this is even, um, this is kind of just uh, an implied first step from some other passages, but let's just talk about that. Matthew 18, 15a, if your brother sins, go. And so the first step in church discipline involves, is going to involve a one-on-one confrontation. However, before I, as an individual believer, confront another believer, I should carefully examine scripture to verify that the offense is actually worthy of such action. And then in the spirit of Galatians 6, 1, I also need to first consider my own life. Hold your finger there and go to Galatians chapter 6 in verse 1. And this is where we're talking about uh, self-evaluation before we take even this initial first step. And Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so we see that qualification there. It says, you who are spiritual. And so again, it, you know, as we've, we talked about in previous studies, how does one know if they're spiritual? Well, they know that, that they're spiritual if, if all of their known sins are confessed and if they're walking by faith in the Lord. In fact, one of the ways they can tell is that when they go to uh, correct this brother, they have a desire to correct this brother, uh, deep down their motive is love. They they care for this brother or sister. They they want the best for them. They want them to respond positively. They don't want to have to take it past this step. Those are all indicators of our motives that we're doing this for the right reasons. But but clearly it, it takes a, a brief and quick self-evaluation to say, am I walking with the Lord? Am I in fellowship with the Lord before I go talk to this brother. And so here's some other questions you can ask yourself. If you ever find yourself in this situation where you feel like you need to correct or to challenge uh, a believer when you become aware of maybe an ongoing sin in their life. Question number one, and I mentioned this earlier, am I truly interested in the good of the offender? You remember Cain's question to God when, when God asked him, where's Abel? He said, am I my brother's keeper? You know, it's kind of like, am I responsible to look after my brother? Well, 
in the church of Jesus Christ, yes, you are your brother's keeper. We are responsible for one another in terms of just caring for one another. And when we see something uh, it, going on in somebody's life that may be harmful to them or may hurt them or may hurt others, we 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 look to the Lord for boldness to to confront them biblically. And um, we're interested in their good. We don't want them to suffer from the sin that we're seeing that they're engaged in or the sin that they're about to, to slip into. We don't want them to suffer the consequences. And so we're interested in their good. We're, we're looking out for them. Number two, am I overlooking some sin in my own life that needs to be addressed first? Again, if you're out of fellowship with the Lord, you're not spiritual and therefore you don't qualify biblically to restore someone else you need to be restored first and and if you're unwilling to confess your own sins and to be restored to fellowship with the lord you are not qualified to correct somebody else or to even attempt to restore somebody else and so it's it all you always start sweeping on your front porch before you try to go sweep somebody else's porch right i mean that's that's the goal doesn't mean you have to be perfect doesn't mean you have to do everything right. It just means you have to be uh, in fellowship with the Lord. You have to have your your known sins confessed. And you have to desire to, to walk uh, in dependence upon the Lord. All of those things um, can be measured in terms of, of the way you're thinking and the way you're responding to even this situation. You know, Matthew 7 talks about, you know, the plank in your own eye. And this is kind of the, the principle that we're talking about here. Uh, number three, am I going in a spirit of gentleness? You know, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. Is that how you're going? Are you looking for a fight? Are you looking to put them in a, in a, in a body slam? Are you looking to put them in a chokehold? I mean, that, those are the wrong motives that immediately gives away that you're not doing it by means of the spirit. Sp- uh, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. And are you going in that spirit? Can you, can you analyze yourself and be honest and, and self-evaluate there? Number four, do I want my brother to be restored or do I simply want him to be punished? You know, am I secretly hoping that he won't listen to me so that I can report him to somebody else and he, I can just watch him get disciplined by somebody else. I mean, we know what our motives are and let's, let's not kid ourselves. We're not, we don't always function with pure motives. None of us do. And so we want to be very careful to evaluate these things before we start engaging um, even in this first step of confronting somebody one-on-one, have you spent time in prayer about this issue? Have you really just asked the Lord to expose if you have bad motives or if you are wrong in confronting them, spend some time asking the Lord to expose you or to reveal that to you before you put your foot in your mouth, um, so to speak. Number six, has too much time passed between the offense and the present? You know, you bringing something up that happened uh, 20 years ago um, that that the person's no longer engaged in. You know, what? How much time has passed? Are they are they engaged in it now, or do they have the potential to be engaged in it again? Are you seeing a pattern develop? What what's going on? So those are the kind of things we want to um, evaluate. And then he and then he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Show him his fault, the, the way that's described means you need to communicate with the person. The person may just be unaware of the sin. Now, you may be greatly offended by what they've done, what they're doing, what they're about to do, and you may be worried, and then the other person may not even have any idea of what they're doing or or the harm that they are potentially causing or 
the way that it's coming off to others, they may not know. And so in some ways, the first time you go, you're, you're assuming the best. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love hopes all things. And in this sense, you're, you're hoping, you're, you're just hoping that maybe they're just unaware of what they're doing is wrong, or they're unaware that other people know, or they're unaware that it's going to have a negative impact on the body of Christ. And so you're going with that attitude just to kind of share that with them, to show it to them, to communicate it to them so that at least they're aware. There's also another description in verse 15. You go and show him his fault in private. You confront a sinning believer on a one-on-one basis. You don't Talk to others about the situation. No one else should be involved. You you must not become guilty of gossip. And I think this is probably the most um, ignored command in all of Scripture. Because when you think about it, believers typically do the exact opposite of this command. If somebody offends them, they talk to everybody else except that person. In fact... There are churches where if somebody has offended somebody, everybody else in the church knows about it except that person. They find out about it last. That's not biblical. That's not healthy. It's the exact opposite uh, from the way that the Lord wants us to handle these situations. And, and, And quite frankly... The reason it probably doesn't happen more often, it's very uncomfortable to confront somebody one-on-one. It's much, much easier to talk about somebody to somebody else. And, and especially talk about somebody to somebody else that we know is already going to agree with us. We, we have this tendency to, to kind of do that in, in safety when we have a concern. But we've got to understand that if we want to be a part of a healthy local church, this is part of each of our roles as we become aware uh, of another believer who, again, is sinning, may not be aware of it, is about to sin, is maybe slipping, maybe has a blind spot. We're all responsible for one another. So take this very seriously and also consider that if you were the one that had the blind spot, would you want the entire church body knowing about it before you did? What if it was something you were completely unaware of and yet the whole church knew about it and then you found out about it last or even from somebody that's not even involved? It's very disheartening when that happens. And notice in Matthew, um, in verse 15 again, the goal is... If he listens to you, the goal is that he would listen to you. And what we learn about this if statement in the Greek, it's a third class condition. What that means is it indicates that the offender may or may not respond favorably. We don't know. It's not saying that he will. It's not saying that he won't. It just, you don't know. Each situation is unique. He may respond favorably, might not. And the word listen does not merely mean that they they hear your words audibly, but it means they listen with attention, with a desire to understand. They're they're absolutely engaged. They're they're taking what you're saying. They're trying to understand what you're saying, and understand if what you're saying has validity or not. They're they're actually listening to you and willing to take correction. This is what we're talking about in this term. Listen, and, and quite frankly, you've got no control over their response. The only thing you have control of is you want to be in fellowship with the Lord and you want to clearly explain what you're seeing that you think is harmful to them and potentially harmful to the body. Then letter F, if he listens to you, if you won your brother, again, the goal of this first step as with all church discipline is restoration. And and again, notice how small the circle 
is here. The circle, the circle of who knows is just you and the person that uh, has offended. It's two people. That's it. And quite frankly, if they respond at this point in the in the ball game, praise the Lord that you have won your brother. You've restored them, and this is they are the only. These are the only two people on earth that ever need to know that this happened or this conversation took took place. But verse sixteen, if he will not hear, we see the second step in church discipline. And although you desired a, p- a positive response. Remember, the response is out of your control. If the response is negative, you must trust the Lord and you must proceed to the next step. One of the things I didn't mention is all of these instructions in verse 16, 17, or verse 15, 16, and 17 are all commands. They're not just optional instructions for us. Once this process is begun, we're to follow this through uh, each step, step by step, until we uh, hopefully get restoration. Uh, or response from the erring believer, or it proceeds to church discipline. So it's a very serious process, very clear as to the Lord how, uh, as to how the Lord would have us handle these situations. Let it be this time. You're going to take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So only after you have tried in vain to correct the sinning believer in private should you involve other people. And, um, you know, it's just as a practical level in that first step, one of the ways you might even leave that conversation with the erring believer is just, Hey, you know, I'm just sharing this. I want to give you time to think about it, pray about it, consider what I said. And when would be a good time to follow up with you? And, and there's, there's a, a process and a care. It's not just like you go to one meeting and they say, well, I don't see it. And you go, all right, we're moving to step two. Again, there's a, there's a gracious process. You're, you're spending time one-on-one trying to win this brother to, to a biblical way of thinking. And so you're taking great care to do that before you involve somebody else. And then when you do involve, you can move to the next step. You're looking at, um, you're looking at taking witnesses with you. Now, the witnesses are very important. Um, they may or may not already be aware of the sin. But you should take these observers with you to witness the discussion and to seek to discern the response of the, the offender. And it's very important to be wise in this step because you want to make sure you're taking believers with you who are spiritual, who are well-respected believers, who will keep the matter confidential. That is so key because if you take the wrong witnesses, you may think, well, you're involved. The one who's offended is involved. And now I've got two other people involved. So now only four people are involved. But if you take the wrong witnesses and that fourth person is a jabber jaw, well, it's going to get out to the whole church way too early. And it's not designed to do that again, where you see this small circle of two is now expanding to a small circle of four and it needs to stay there. And so the other thing we need to understand is these witnesses, you're not building a team against the offender. You're taking along people who you know that you can trust spiritually to assess this situation and, and really help to, to either persuade or convince this erring believer that, that number one, they're wrong and they need a change of mind or possibly even to persuade you that, Hey, this is not really an offense that needs to be escalated at this point. And so you're looking for mature believers that can come along and witness this conversation. That's what we're talking about here. Now they may know, they may be aware of the sin as well, maybe in agreement with you. That's fine too, but it's not like we're looking for people that are on our side. This is not a war, 
at this point at all. This is, we're trying to win a brother. And so you're just looking for somebody that can be objective that possibly even this person respects uh, and would listen to maybe even more than you. And so this is what we're trying to do in that second step. But uh, there's a third step because if he doesn't listen to them, again, if restoration was not obtained in the second confrontation, it's time to transition to this third step. And so the third step is to tell it to the church. And the way I would take it there is that together with your witnesses, you would need to present the issue to the church elders who are then responsible to confront the erring believer. Again, the goal in that step is going to be restoration. Now the the pastor and the, and the other elders should be involved at this point uh, in confronting this erring believer. And again, um, that's a process. It's a caring process. It's maybe a multi-step process in the sense that, and I say multi-step, I mean, maybe multiple meetings to, to challenge, to understand what they're thinking, what they've heard, and then to, to challenge their thinking and give them time to think about it, pray about it, meet with them again. So uh, there's a, there's a process and a care involved, but if this person does not respond to the church leadership, um, If he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so if after prayer and careful communication, having patiently made every effort to restore the erring believer according to biblical principles, he or she remains unrepentant without a change of mind, it's finally time to put this believer out of the church, isolating them from fellowship with other believers. And so you can see the process here. You can see the time, the care, the investment of resources that that the church uh, fellow believers are putting into this person. And quite frankly, what you'll find is many carnal believers after they get to the first or second step, if they're being corrected this much, they're not even going to stick around. They're just going to leave the church. They, they're, they don't want to be berated or they feel like they're being berated or judged incorrectly. And many of them won't stay around and keep coming out uh, to the church. But if they do, this would be the moment that uh, church discipline would be enacted. Paul called this this step that we just looked at, this church discipline. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, he, he called it delivering such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh uh, and then handing them over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's what we looked at in 1 Timothy 1.20. And, you know, this is extreme. And it's a final, what we would call tough love measure. And again, it's implemented so that the lack of fellowship with the Christian community might serve to bring about repentance and restoration. Again, it's the last ditch effort, last ditch opportunity to shock their thinking into a biblical way of thinking. It's a design to get their attention and to change their minds so they can be restored to fellowship. We just want them in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, not living in sin. We want them growing spiritually. That's the whole goal. Okay. So it's a goal of restoration, um, in love. You know, one of the things when Paul says that he's delivering such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh or handing them over to Satan, basically it's just a way of saying he's putting them outside of the protection of the local church. And, you know, we see what Satan, how Satan can destroy somebody's flesh. flesh. We see that in the book of Job. Lots of different ways to enact uh, trials to, to destroy somebody 
um, in a sense, physically and maybe maybe within their family, within their their sphere of influence. There's lots of different ways that and tools and Satan loves destruction. And so this is a this is designed to put them out of the church uh, outside of the safety uh, of the local church, if you will, um, so that so that things would would happen that would, again, impact their thinking, make them connect point A to B, wow, I'm suffering a lot out here. Maybe it's because I'm not listening to biblical instruction. Wow, I'm suffering a lot out here. Maybe it's because I, you know, I told the elders that they could go fly a kite. You know, they, these things are designed to make a connection for them and, and realize that their issues that they're now having outside of the church, although they thought life would be much better now that nobody's judging them, it actually has become worse. And it's a design again to challenge their thinking to restore them. The fifth step in church discipline, it's been alluded to in this whole section, but it's the ultimate goal is, is restoration of the sinning believer to fellowship with the Lord in the local church. The The last step is not church discipline. Remember, that's a tool to get to the end. Uh, and the end is restoration. That's what we're looking for. Uh, church discipline is just a tool or a mechanism that can be used by the local church again as a last ditch effort to to change or convince somebody to change their thinking and so restoration is the final step of church discipline. Uh, Matthew 18 the desired response is for the offending believer to listen to correction and they give him multiple opportunities to do so in multiple different settings. And if at any point along the way the sinning believer responds and repents or changes their mind. There must be immediate forgiveness and restoration of fellowship. We don't put them on probation. We don't say, well, let's see how good you behave for the next 90 days. No, there's an immediate response in coming alongside of this believer. In fact, if there's, if the believer has been isolated from the church, the moment he or she confesses their sin, they should be brought back into fellowship just as before without bringing up the past. And that's very difficult um, for some people, even believers in the church, because, you know, by the time it reaches church discipline, this person has rejected many people and maybe had some very fiery arguments, uh, maybe said some things that they would regret later, maybe some hurt feelings along the way. And so, you know, the, the church needs to be ready to receive this person back um, in the love of Jesus Christ, ready to forgive, ready to move on. And, um, you know, we see an example of this in Second Corinthians chapter 2. Um, and, and basically, Paul advised, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And this was Second um, Corinthians, um, obviously was written after First Corinthians, but First Corinthians five was the situation of the the church discipline with the brother who was uh, again shacked up with his stepmom. Um, he was put out of the church, you know, based on Paul's instructions to them. First Corinthians five, they put him out of the church, and it's possible in Second Corinthians two that Paul is now talking about the same man who had been put out of the church, who had repented or changed his mind. And, but now the Corinthian church wouldn't let him back into the fellowship. It's possible. It's the same exact example. And now Paul's saying, guys, 
You disciplined him. He's changed his mind. The goal is restoration. Bring him back in so he's not overwhelmed by sorrow being kept outside of the church. And hopefully that's the case. We would we would love to, to know the final story of 1 Corinthians 5 is that you had a brother who was church disciplined who actually responded uh, to the to the Lord, responded to his word, responded to correction, and then went on faithfully throughout the rest of his life. Um, walking in fellowship with the Lord and serving the Lord. That would be a great ending to that story. And hopefully that's what 2 Corinthians 2 is talking about. But again, Paul says a couple of things here in this passage. It's It's important to point out. The church's first response to the repentant offender was forgiveness. The second response was comfort. And then the third response was assurance of the church's love and support. And, you know, this, you'll notice that all three of these, these are not, um, these are not passive. Okay. Uh, in other words, they're, they're intentional. They're, they're outreaching. We, we, as a church body, when we restore, receive somebody back, excuse me, that's been restored to fellowship through confession and repentance, we are taking the initiative to make them feel uh, accepted again in part of the body. We're going out of our way to assure them, to reaffirm our love for them, our care, our support. Um, the fact that they're, they're one of us again, we, we go out of our way as a body when that happens. Now, letter C brings up a great question. How can a church know whether or not an erring believer has had a genuine change of mind and whether or not they should be restored to fellowship. Well, a couple of ways that we can tell is, does the person freely acknowledge his or her sin? Do they, do they take what they've done lightly or do they take it seriously? Um, outside of the hearing of the elders, do they joke about the way that they were disciplined? Like, oh yeah, I hope they don't catch me in anything else. I, I couldn't do that again. Or, or are they serious about it? Wow, I can see what they were saying. I could see what you guys were saying. I was wrong. Do they, do they freely acknowledge their sin? You know, James 5.16 talks about confessing our sins one to another. Or in secret, are they still fuming that the, that the leaders would ever have challenged them on that? You know, some people, um, they get, they get really, they get all, all, uh, fussy and, and, and excited and hot under the collar. Um, if, if somebody challenges something that they're doing, um, uh, because they, because they think they know their own motives. Oh, well, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to do that. I didn't mean to do that. Therefore you shouldn't, you know, tell me that what I was doing is wrong. And, and a lot of times people are doing things that maybe their motives are pure, but it's still, not a biblical thing to do. It's still harming the body of Christ. It's still inappropriate or, or even potentially sinful that this person may not be aware of. And so uh, a lot of times people might um, be sorry, but they're sorry they got caught, not sorry for what they did. And there's a difference there. And that's kind of what we're looking for in an erring believer. They had a genuine change of mind. Do they realize that what they did, whether or not they wanted to, it to come off that way is, could be perceived that way or, or was viewed that way. Do they understand um, their sin and their wrongdoing? Number two, has they, have they ceased from the activity for which he or she was disciplined as the person sought help? Has they sought, have they sought restoration? You know, it's not to say that they may not still be weak, but they don't, 
they don't justify their failures. They own their failures now. Whereas before, maybe, maybe when they were involved in, in sin and they were, had to be put out of the church, they would justify their failures. Well, maybe now they recognize that it's a weakness. They own their failures. That's, that's a person that has had a genuine uh, change of mind. Number three, has a person made restitution where necessary? Has the person asked for forgiveness from those that they hurt? You know, Luke 19 reflects Zacchaeus's response, right? He's going to pay back everything that he had stole. I think, I think he says fourfold. There's a heart of restitution when somebody is wrong, somebody and realized that they were wrong, that they, they have a change of mind and they're looking to make restoration and looking to ask for forgiveness and respecting uh, others' hurts that they've caused and in, in addressing those in whatever way uh, that's reasonable to be, to be addressed. Number four, does the person sorrow about the harm caused to God's reputation, the local church, or to others? And then finally, does the person presently manifest the fruit of the spirit or an interest in spiritual things? You know, are they still coming? Are they coming out to church? Are they engaged with the word of God? Are they engaged with others? Are they just coming out, sitting in the corner and pouting? That would be concerning. Somebody that has been restored to fellowship and yet uh, they're over there unwilling to engage. They're just pouting in the corner, basically making a show. And so uh, again, we're looking for somebody who has been convinced by the Lord, by his word, that what they were involved in was wrong, that the church discipline in their case was correct, and they are looking to be restored to the body of Christ. We're going to end right there. Obviously, that's a tough topic. Now, obviously, this is something that hopefully is very rare. Um, if you've never seen or, or experienced this before, hopefully it's never happened to you before. That would be obviously painful, not probably a good memory. Hopefully, too, you've never been in a church that's had to do it. It's, if not, you've been blessed. It's a very difficult thing to go through, but it's also very rare. And I think there are reasons in our day that it's rare. But one, of, one of which is it probably doesn't hold the same type of disciplinary effect or consequence that it did. Because if you put somebody out of the church, they just go down the road a, a block to the next church and then that church is typically happy to add a new person. You know, it may not have the same kind of impact as it did in the first century, but it is still a tool. Um, and God can still work in minds and hearts uh, of the people who have been disciplined. It's still a tool. But in terms of the impact socially and in things, many people will just go down the road. Again, like I said before, the, the second Oftentimes, if you start correcting somebody, many times they'll just, they'll just leave. You never even have to get to the step of actually putting them out officially. So it is rare. Um, We probably don't see it much in our day for those, for those reasons. 